if you'll excuse me, I will give another notice. Tuesday is Kaleidoscope. Um, I'm not sure why <laughs> it gets forgotten, but it does. gives me the opportunity to say, do come along. We're singing carols and probably eating mince pies and drinking mulled apple juice. So do join us if you're free, 10.30 to 12 on Tuesday. Um, and now the reading. The reading is from Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 to 9, and that's on page 697. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy, with justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash round his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Thank you very much indeed, um, Polly, for reading to us. I'd love you to keep Isaiah 11 open, if you would. Um, I can uh, do my additional notice um, and just encourage you to, to just keep checking the website. It's the, it's the go-to place for things. Over the next couple of weeks, different events happening and different service times, which I know is a real pain. So... There are 11 o'clock services, but not 9.30 services the next two weeks. Looking forward to a service that Neil will be leading on the 31st in the morning, as well as that um, uh, Memorial Hall one at 5 p.m. in the the evening. But the website is the place to get the accurate information and to tell us if it's not accurate. I hope it's accurate now. It looks to me right, um, and that's the best place to go for and a regularly updated um, and uh, full details of what's going on. I wanted to say thank you too as well. I'm, I'm looking over my shoulder that the, the recorders team are no longer here. Some of them, one of them is still here. Thank you, Justin. Please pass on thanks. Neil's here. Um, I don't know if Susan's still here, but Neil, Susan, Annalise, Justin, and Eleanor um, treated us to lovely music. And by way of saying thank you to the the, the decorating team as well. I think I'm um, just thrilled with the, the tree and all the other festal greenery that's around. That is a, a lovely team that works well together, and they would happily take recruits to join them if you want to uh, be part of that.
Let me pray with uh, these words open before us, and then we'll uh, look again at that passage. We thank you, Lord, for the mention of the power of the word of that uh, son of David in the reading. Um, We pray that his word would be mighty as we turn to it this morning and powerful in its effect on our lives. Uh, Therefore, please speak to us, Heavenly Father, by your spirit as we look at these words now. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know whether to um, confess that uh, we are in between two turkey feasts in the rectory at the moment in our house because we not only look forward to a turkey feast on Christmas Day, but we've had one uh, on Thanksgiving, uh, which happens and happened, um, happens as ever every, uh, every year on the fourth Thursday in November. And you'll probably be aware that Thanksgiving has its origins in the early days of the United States when the Mayflower settlers had hopes and dreams of a new world, despite all the struggles of a pilgrim existence. That hope kept them going and was a matter of thanksgiving for them. I love the title of Hope Explored, that course we're doing. That hope of a a better world, captured by the the pilgrims in the US and uh, by Rico Tyson's advert, that's one we can all understand, isn't it? Um, We'd all just love to know how to get there, I suppose. Is there any realistic hope of it? Well, that's why we're turning to the Bible. In the run-up to Christmas, we've been looking at some of the promises of God made in the Old Testament and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And it is the Christian hope, as we heard in Isaiah 11 just now, that the wolf will lie down and live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, Uh, Verse 9 puts it in a slightly different way again. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That great hope. Now, of course, the hard-nosed atheist or skeptic looks with pity on anyone who actually hopes for paradise to be restored. It is to them simply wishful thinking. But I want to ask, what if the evidence is actually on the side of the believer? Because God has already shown a commitment to keep promises like the one we've just been looking at in Isaiah chapter 11. Let me walk you through the logic of these lovely verses from Isaiah 11. We meet first a qualified king. That's my first heading. And in case it passed you by as the reading was there, the idea of royalty is there in the first verse of the chapter. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Is it royalty? Where's that in there? Well, Jesse was the father of King David. And so the image of a shoot coming up from the stump of Jesse is saying that even if the tree of God's kingdom has been cut down, there's still a new beginning which will spring up from those royal roots. And I found on the reading desk as I came in this morning, uh, lovingly put there by Annalise, I think, uh, a stump. You have to imagine that this is left in the ground. It's, a tree has been chopped off, and what do we have here? A little shoot coming out the side. I'm sure you can't quite see it, Zoomers. I'm sorry about that. But if this was it's still in the ground, weren't they saying that about that uh, 
tree that was chopped down on Hadrian's Wall, it might re-sprout a shoot coming up the side as a, a, an emblem of hope. And royal hope, royal hope, and you springing up from those royal roots. In the prophet's uh, day, Isaiah, uh, things were pretty prosperous for the time being, but it wasn't going to last because in just a few years' time, Isaiah knew that Judah would be for the chop, it would be cut down in its prime, and just a smouldering tree stump would remain. But Isaiah is saying that's not the end of the story, there's more to come. Let me give you another bit of my artwork. I don't know if Justin's seen this, so he knows what to look for. Um, this is uh, from the School of Scott Art, and I have to explain the hieroglyphs unless you've got very keen eyesight. But this is trying to explain the place of the prophecies in the Old Testament timeline, with the time axis running along left to right at the bottom of the picture there. The main writing prophets, like Isaiah, actually, for the most part, existed on the right-hand side of that diagram. Um, on the left, the kingdom of God is growing. So you see a line there, green line, growth of the kingdom, going uphill. Um, and God's people in God's place under God's rule is an increasing reality with good King David, I suppose, a high point there. And then Solomon, his son, um, in the middle there. Yeah, pretty much the high point of Old Testament and the growth of the kingdom. Then, thereafter, a red line going down. The kingdom is in decline. And you can probably just about make out two disastrous episodes in that decline. 722 was when the northern kingdom of Israel, it was called, or Ephraim sometimes, when that kingdom was brought down by Assyria. And then in 586, when Jerusalem was invaded and the Jewish people were, for the most part, exiled to Babylon. From which point... Uh, there really were just weak puppet kings left at that point. So there's the red line. But the prophets kept on all the time restating the promises of God. Uh, in fact, if anything, the promises were even bigger. So there's a, uh, a dotted line that goes up that is the same color as the original growth of the kingdom line to emphasize that the prophets are still giving promise growth type teaching at that point. Uh, all the while, as the kingdom is declining, the red arrow, that's happening. And you might be thinking, well, how could that be? Bigger promises and a weaker kingdom. How can you have both of those two things at the same time? Well, only if God himself acts dramatically. In fact, only ultimately if God himself shows up in person. Economists talk about the green shoots of recovery to point to some time that the downturn is actually becoming an upturn. Well, here the shoot is not a change in economic climate. It is a person, a king in David's royal line. So in continuity with that uh, solid green line there, a shoot which will become a branch and ultimately a tree bearing fruit. And the next few verses show that it's a very special king because he's not just anointed with oil by a priest. 
He is the Lord's anointed with the Holy Spirit of God resting on him. I think that's enough of my artwork. I'm sorry for it being pretty hard to decipher. But how wonderful that the Lord's anointed with the Holy Spirit of God resting on him is predicted. Verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the Spirit of counsel and of might, the Spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he'll delight in the fear of the Lord. That's why we can say so confidently that this king is a qualified king. Normally every human leader will prove to be a disappointment. Remember that as we face a year with a general election to come. Human leaders cannot eliminate all the problems because they are themselves part of the problem. That's not just being disrespectful of leaders. We all are, aren't we? But this king would be different. Yes, he'd be human from the line of David, but he'd be more than human. He'd be anointed by the Holy Spirit of God. And unlike other leaders, say Samson or, or Saul, who had the Holy Spirit for specific tasks, on this descendant of David, the Spirit rests or remains. And therefore this king is qualified. He is human, so he must have a proper respect for Almighty God, delighting in the fear of the Lord. What a lovely phrase that is. That sets him apart, doesn't it? from the average run-of-the-mill power-crazed dictator. He's human, but he's more than human, because by the Holy Spirit, he's able to bring godlike qualities to his reign, wisdom, understanding, power. Now, there's a leader who can change the world. And, of course, it's not just a nice idea. He actually came. It was 700 years later, but still, he actually showed up in person. There was that moment in the early life of Jesus Christ when the reading in the synagogue happened to be from another section, admittedly, of Isaiah, but one just like this one, where the Spirit-anointed king actually speaks in person. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Um, and Jesus read those words and the following words, and then with everybody's eyes fixed on him, he said, those words are fulfilled now. In other words, in me. And what you find as you look at the account of his life in the Gospels? Well, he certainly had sort of wisdom that's talked about here. Nobody ever taught like this man. In debate, if you try to put him on the spot, he could always turn the tables on his questioner. He had power too. In fact, nothing could stand up against him. Not sickness, not evil, not even death itself. He made things better. And yet, unlike most other leaders and kings, this one lived in the fear of the Lord without any pride or any hypocrisy. Evil, it seems, had no handle at all on Jesus in the way it does on everybody else. He was the qualified king that Isaiah predicted. So what specifically would this king do? What's in his job description? Well, on to a second heading, a decisive judgment. And this may be a, a surprise, so have a look, please, down at verses 3b to 5, because it may not be what you're expecting. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. 
With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash round his waist. So here's the job description for God's anointed ruler. His job is to judge. As I say, perhaps that isn't how you think of Jesus straight away. But the picture is of a courtroom at the end of time, only this is a courtroom where reasonable doubt doesn't exist because this judge doesn't need to rely on what he's seen or heard. He has perfect knowledge anyway. In this courtroom, there are none of the familiar ways of dodging justice. There's no bribery. There's no diplomatic immunity. No extradition delays. Um, Notice, too, how justice isn't skewed in favor of the rich against the poor in the way it so often is. This is perfect justice. And when this judge pronounces sentence, there are no arguments or appeals needed. He'll strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. And he will get it right. No debate, no delays, just the decisive judgment of Almighty God perfectly executed without even a hint of evil in the way it's done and without even an iota of evil escaping it. Now, we humans are simply not able to deliver justice like that, but God is absolutely committed to it. And, of course, deep down, we all know that that is a good thing. And what hope is there for our world if evil isn't dealt with decisively? So we have that sense that this is a good thing. The problem is that evil isn't simply out there. We all know it's also in here. It's in each of our hearts, isn't it? We add to the sum total of evil that we identify out there in the world around us. Next time you find yourself reading something in the news Um, which makes your blood boil, some scandal, some injustice. Well, just when that happens, count to ten and ask yourself honestly how you view the evil in your own heart. Have you really faced up to that? Or are you ignoring it or just trying to excuse it? What will you say when faced by Jesus Christ as judge? Of course, the truly amazing thing is that Jesus can actually get us through that judgment. When he came in the first place, John 3 says he didn't come to judge. He could have. He was qualified. But instead, on the cross as judge, he bore the sentence on evil himself. The one who was good, perfect, was struck down for our evil. And if I come to him as somebody who needs a pardon, he will amazingly give a decision in my favor. He'll say, Simon Scott, there is no case for you to answer because your crime, your sin, has already been judged. I can be forgiven. I mean, it's the most wonderful, wonderful news. But I'm not to think of it lightly. It only happens because Jesus the judge took our judgment on himself when he died on the cross. And he did it, of course, out of the most amazing love for us. I mean, the fact that he 
did it tells us surely how serious evil is. Nothing less would do to deal with it. God's absolutely committed to dealing with what's wrong in the world and in our lives. But by the same token, it tells us how, how much he loves us. How committed he is to dealing with our sins so that we can be spared the punishment for it. He loves us enough to do that for us. Well, make no mistake about it. With the evidence of Jesus bearing judgment, there's a qualified king. And if I'm not forgiven by him, there'll be a decisive judgment. And only then can there be paradise restored. That's my last heading. Let me read those mouth-watering words again from verses 6 to 9. Aren't they beautiful? The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is a world order which is so safe that not even the animals attack each other. And where a child, the most vulnerable of human beings, has nothing to fear from even the most vicious predator. In the garden paradise, evil entered the world through a serpent. And here, the curse on creation is overturned, and humankind is once again victorious over the snake. Paradise is restored. Now, we can't guarantee safety like that, can we? Every parent, I suppose, tries to warn their children, don't touch the iron, don't talk to strangers. We'd love to be able to make a dangerous world a little bit safer for our children. But we can't guarantee safety to them or even to ourselves. And God is telling us instead to lift up our eyes to a paradise restored by him. He made the world in the first place. He can remake it through Jesus Christ. And if we'll only let him deal with our evil, we can be part of that. At home with God, where they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, he says. What a prospect. No one to harm us anymore. And we could add no one to be arrogant towards us. Nobody to deceive us. Because, as it puts it here, the only people there will be those who know the Lord. The earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And I assume that means 100% bar nothing. Only people with this knowledge of the Lord will be part of that place. Those who don't know the Lord are excluded. And not even a hint of evil will sneak in to spoil it. So the vital question this passage faces us with is this. If it's all a matter of the knowledge of the Lord that fills this place and that's the passport to a restored paradise, then do I know God? Have I got to that stage in my life where I'm confident that I know him personally for myself? Have I had my evil forgiven? Or is it still with me? Because unless my sin is forgiven and I know God, then I can't be part of that new creation. I'm a busy um, amateur gardener. I wonder if you can forgive 
an illustration from gardening. Don't tell me I've got it wrong, but I'm going to try it anyway, okay? I imagine most people here know the difference between annuals and perennials. An annual comes into flower in one season, and then really that's its lot. And some aspects of Old Testament truth that are prophesied and predicted are a bit like that. There are prophecies which are only focusing on the details of Jesus' first coming. And they have a bright bloom, but from that point on, their job is done. Uh, Perennials are different. They may flower beautifully in their first season, but they reach their full beauty and maturity in later years. Now, it seems to me that Isaiah 11 is a prophecy like that. There's a a bright bloom when Jesus came the first time. He did bring in the knowledge of God. He did forgive sin. Uh, He set the curse on creation in reverse, even at that stage. But the full bloom gets seen repeatedly from that point as well. There was a new season's flowering in the life of the church. And in that chapter of the fulfillment of these prophecies, you see in an uh, amazing way how an unimaginable divide got overcome, equivalent to leopards and lambs or goats, just as wonderful as, as lions and lambs being reconciled when Jews and Gentiles came together under the lordship of Christ. Uh, You see it still in the life of the church today, where Jesus Christ brings people together who ordinarily would have nothing to do with each other, or might even be at each other's throats. Now, I need to enter a little caveat at this point. There is a difference between the visible church and the true church. You won't always see, amongst all who call themselves Christians, this peaceable kingdom. Because not all who call themselves Christians are actually under the reconciling rule of Jesus Christ. And I think that's important to say today, when denominational leaders often make arguments in the name of unity and plead for unity, but they don't necessarily mean by that unity under the rule of Jesus Christ and his word. And... Of course, that kind of, if I can call it this, a sham unity, calls for that kind of unity will never bring people together effectively. How could they? Only when Jesus is Lord and his word is guiding us will you see this kind of miracle happening. Actually, only when Jesus returns to deal with evil fully and finally will all the miracles and beauty of Isaiah 11 be fully seen. Then we're really going to see the fair flower of paradise restored. But in the meantime, where a group of people are forgiven by Christ and under his rule, then this paradise restored can begin to flower. And it'll still be imperfect in lots of ways, but it will be a foretaste of heaven. And if you haven't experienced that in your relationship with other Christians, then come and talk to me. I'd love to uh, tease out a bit more what that could mean for you. Because... This passage is saying, well, what a difference Jesus Christ makes. I wonder if, like me, you've had snatches of music from Handel's Messiah in mind as we've been looking at these amazing prophecies from Isaiah in the last few weeks. I was reminded, I did a bit of fact-finding again on the circumstances in which Handel wrote his masterpiece because things were not promising for Handel in 1741. He was ill, um, 
His recent work had been a bit of a flop, and he was actually on the brink of imprisonment for his debts when he received, one fine day, a commission from a Dublin charity to compose a work for a benefit performance. And that was the point at which he hardly left his room or ate for about three weeks, I think, until 260 pages of manuscript later, um, it was ready for the opening night. And on its opening night, Messiah raised 400 pounds, freed 142 people from debtors' prison, um, and so on. One biographer claimed this, more than any other single musical production in this or any other country, Messiah fed the hungry, clothed the naked, fostered the orphan. I'm sure that biographer was talking about a piece of music. But of course, those words actually describe perfectly the true Messiah whom Handel knew and served, Jesus Christ. Messiah fed the hungry, clothed the naked, fostered the orphan. He restores paradise. He did it in his life. He will do it fully in the future. And he can do it in us and through us now. In our families, in our churches, in our workplace, and so on. If we will only submit ourselves to him. Well, let's pray together. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And we pray, Lord, claiming that promise, will you make yourself more fully known to us uh, individually this Christmas? Fill our lives with that knowledge of you. Help us to grow in our relationship with you, in our obedience to you. Fill us by your spirit that rested on him and is his to give even today. Fill our church with a greater knowledge of you, the Lord, we pray. Make yourself more fully known to us in small groups, in uh, courses that we run, Sunday sermons, and uh, so much more. We pray for that to be happening for us as a church. And spread your knowledge through us, we pray to others. May that be the outcome of Hope Explored. Help us to know what part we can play in increasing the knowledge of you uh, to those we know. You've promised it, Lord. We thank you that uh, your zeal fulfills these promises and makes them come true. And we pray that it would happen in our midst through your mighty power. In Jesus' name, amen.